I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. I can tell you there's a party back in Bethany that's not. I can tell you there's some people in mourning right now that are heartbroken over the loss of their brother. There's others that are there with them that are heartbroken over the loss of their dear friend. It seems like Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were prominent members within the community. It seems like they were very generous people. So it seems like they had a very positive influence on the area that they lived. And, and we find that there's a lot of people there mourning. I can tell you there's a lot of people not glad that Jesus wasn't there. And Jesus says, I'm glad that I was not there for your sakes. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now fast forward to verse 25, if you will. Our series, if you will, just the three sermons we'll preach from, kind of all spring forth from this passage that Jesus says in verse 25. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? This is a wonderful chapter in God's Word. And as I read through it, I read through it many, many times, trying to find what God would have me specifically preach on, not only for this week, but also next and the following week, which is Easter. I, I sought God's will on this. I prayed over this. I, I read through this passage many times. And what became abundantly clear as I read through this passage that the, there are many characters involved in this, the events that take place. More than that, it's unique. It's like a, a great movie that is being made as the camera seems to shift from character to character. And we get great insight to the emotions and the feelings that each person may be going through as they deal with this tragic loss of Lazarus. There's many perspectives, by my count, and maybe you can count more than me or less than me, I count five different perspectives within this chapter alone. I count the perspective of the disciples. See, they're very involved in this chapter. This book is penned by one of them, and and so they're very involved in what's going on. I count the perspective of the sisters as they're the ones grieving over the loss of Lazarus. I count the perspective of Jesus, and those are the three that we'll study. But there's also two other perspectives. There's the perspective of the mourners. It's a beautiful thing, but in a little while, the, the mourners will say, after John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept, the shortest verse in all the Word of God. The very next verse says, Behold how He loved him. Behold how Jesus loved this man Lazarus, that he was so moved to tears. And see, that's a perspective shift to the the mourners that are present there. And then there's the perspective of the Pharisees that are viewing Jesus' wonderful authoritative power over death, hell, and the grave. And we'll study three perspectives. This morning, however, we'll just look at the perspective of the disciples. You see, Christ wanted to teach them some lessons in the way that He handled this problem. Did you know this morning that Christ wants to continue to teach you? I've just got a feeling that though you may have been saved a month or a year or ten years or even more than that, I've got a feeling that God's not done teaching you things until you're with Him. 
And God wants to teach you some things this morning. I think that uh, Brother Charlie and Miss Amanda are doing a wonderful job as they uh, serve in the ministry here, as they raise Della. I mean, they're doing a great job, but we have the privilege of spending some time with them. And, and Della's just a sweet little girl, and they're, they're doing their best. They're facing the battles that new parents face, and uh, it's cool to see them make decisions that they think is in the best interest of, uh, of Della and trying to raise her up. Now they have uh, Wyatt, who's probably already here, honestly. We, I mean, we, uh, she could go into labor at any moment. She's not here, so she's probably at the hospital. That's how committed you are, Brother Charlie. You stayed in church, three to thrive. Amen, brother? Amen. She's due any moment now. And, and so uh, they're, they're going through these battles. But Della has a sweet disposition and a temperament. And uh, a while back, they started to notice that she was just saying things like, yes, and get me this, and uh, can, can I get a drink, and those types of things. And they want her to be polite. And by the way, isn't it refreshing to have a polite child speak to you? Just to say thank you, yes sir, please, yes ma'am. That's just a refreshing thing. I got told all the time, yeah, did you grow up in the military? No, I just grew up in a militant Christian home. So, and I'm thankful for it. But Brother Charlie and Miss Amanda have been trying to teach Della the right way to ask for things. And so she'll say, can I get a drink? And here's what Brother Charlie and Miss Amanda will say. They'll say, right way, Della. And I think initially she would say, okay, please can I have a drink? But they've emphasized that there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. Now, here's literally what plays out. Della will say, can I get a drink? They'll say, right way, Della. And she'll say, right way, can I please get a drink? <laughs> now, right way is just as important to the overall question as please. Now, what even got better was the other night we were spending some time with them. And uh, uh, now, Miss Amanda will say, Della, can you please help me clean up the living room? Or, Della, can you please pick up your toys? And Della will go, right way, Mama. <laughs> and now, Miss Amanda has to say, right way, Della, please pick up the living room. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're doing a great job, but I think she maybe missed the lesson to what they're trying to tell her to do. My friend, this morning I don't want you to miss the lessons for what Christ has for us. Christ says that there is a right way and a wrong way to live this life. There's a straight way and a broad way. And I believe this morning that Christ wanted to teach His disciples some lessons. So let's look at the right way to learn these lessons. First of all, He wanted to teach them lessons about the interruptions of life about when things are going along just as they should be, and then something interrupts that progress. I want you to see at the beginning of the chapter, as John chapter 11 begins and says, Now a certain man was sick. Well, you know how easily that can happen to you? You know how easily that can happen to me? Deeply ingrained within every one of our souls is the, the, the honest realization of our mortality. And in just a moment, especially with cars flying down 70 miles an hour down I-35, in just a moment of time, interruptions can happen. I'll not, I, I can remember just a, 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 a while ago as a, I was out doing some business and I got a phone call. My wife was trying to reach me. She knew I was obligated. She knew I couldn't speak. 
but it was odd that she was calling. So I texted back that generic phone call that says, uh, can't talk right now. And she texted back and said, emergency. Well, I knew something was up. I left the place that I was. I answered the phone. And in that moment, I received absolutely earth-shattering news. And in that public place and in that public venue, that emergency rocked me to my core. And I stood there holding myself against the wall of the building that I was on, weeping and praying an emergency. You know, things can interrupt life. How do you handle those interruptions? How do you deal with it? You see, the prescription for when life is good and when life is tough is the exact same. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. God wants you to trust Him and follow Him through whatever interruptions may come. But man, there are some real problems when we start to try to do that when interruptions do occur. I want to give you three enemies to following God through these interruptions. Number one, I want you to see the past. Verse number three tells us that these people, uh, the, Jesus and His disciples, were, uh, had to be sent for. Why did they have to send for them? Because... The story, in in, in a sense, takes place in two different locations. You have the scene of Mary and Martha and Lazarus playing out in Bethany. And there is the scene of Jesus who has fled from the area of Jerusalem because things have gotten too tense. He's now had to go to this uh, other place called Bethabara. and, And we find that he's there ministering. Now, Bethabara is a unique place because... Jesus, the Bible tells us this is the place where John first baptized. The Bible tells us that this is the place where Jesus was baptized. This is the place where John stepped out on the bank of the Jordan River and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. In fact, if you do in a little word study on what Bethabara means, it means the house of confidence. The house of confidence. It could be said that Bethabara served for Christ and His disciples as a place of comfort. As a a place of past blessing. And when the interruptions of life occur, here's what we're often tempted to do. Go back to the place we we last felt God. Go back to the place of comfort Go back, and in many cases we fall, fall into our default routines. We just go back. We know whatever steps we've made, whatever uh, progress has been accomplished, when adversity hits us and confronts us, we just step back and say, I'm just going to go back. And I'll tell you, it's a very tempting thing to do. It's very much like the children of Israel who are pursuing to the promised land and they finally get so tired of the the adversity and they say, oh, but we wish that we could be by the flesh pots in Egypt. Just because you face interruptions and just because you face adversity doesn't mean that you're not on God's plan and not in God's path. That's not what that means at all. There will be times where you'll face issues. So how do we stay in God's will? How do we stay following God uh, and not just default back to what we've known, our our routines and, and the things that we rely on so readily? 
One person said it like this, Nostalgia is a file that removes the rough edges from the good old days. Have you ever noticed how everybody has good old days? But nobody ever realizes or recognizes the good old days when you're in them. Nostalgia kind of knocks off those rough edges. Sometimes when you're in the middle of a major life change or, or something interrupts your life, here's what we do. We just try to pursue the good old days. But listen, friend, the good old days should stay in the rearview mirror. You keep following God into tomorrow. And I'm thankful for the song that says, I know who holds tomorrow because I know He holds my hand. Don't just default back to the past when interruptions occur. This was a house of confidence. Man, they could have just stayed there. It's comfortable. It's what we know. But yet, it wasn't God's will. It wasn't where God wanted them to follow Him. Secondly, the enemy of the interruptions of life and following God through them is progress. You say, well, that seems very odd. And and I'll admit it is, because in chapter 10, verse 41, I want you to see what's going on in the ministry of Jesus right now. Verse 41 of chapter 10, the Bible says, And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. You know what is going on in Jesus' ministry at this particular moment? There is no opposition. There is no adversity. People are coming to him in droves, and they are accepting the gospel. I think, and what you see is, John, his ministry was meant to pave the way for Jesus. He was the predecessor, if you will, to make straight the paths and prepare the way for the Lord. And now as Jesus goes to this place, guess what? John did a good job preparing, and now the fruit is ripe for picking. So Jesus preaches, and people are coming to him and says, We didn't see John do any miracles, but everything John preached about this Lamb of God is true. And many believed on him. And you know what had been very tempting for the disciples to do? Well, things are working out here. Everything's moving right along. We're seeing fruit, we're seeing blessing. But listen, progress is not the determining factor in God's will. Following God isn't just the case of whether or not things are going well or whether or not things are going bad. You know, I think of a man by the name of Philip who who experienced what we could consider the first outside of Jerusalem revival. He preaches the gospel, sees souls saved, many demons are cast out, people are healed. There's even a sorcerer that comes and gets saved. A great conversion story. And in the middle of revival, God says, hey, Philip, you know what? There's an Ethiopian eunuch under a shade tree. I need you to go to him. Well, what's odd about that is why would Philip need to leave the revival? Because he had to follow God to the eunuch. Progress is not the be-all, end-all of determining whether or not you're following God. Just because you got money in the bank account and the kids will still smile at you and the dog still wags his tail when you pet him does not mean that you are in God's will. It doesn't. I think of men like Noah who every day went out there to just work on that boat. Oh man, the commitment and the resolve of Noah. I guarantee you from day to day he didn't see much progress. Noah could have just throw up his hands and say, you know what, I, over the course of the hundred years I've been working on this boat, we've not really accomplished that much. Since there's no progress, I must not be following God. 
Moses' ministry made him to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Just wander aimlessly. Jeremiah served for decades preaching a, a, a message of judgment with no fruit of repentance. Do you suggest to all these men that since their ministry wasn't just this uh, amazing, growing, rapidly uh, springing forth fruit uh, ministry that it was not in God's plan? Friend, just because there's progress doesn't mean you're following God. I cannot tell you how many families have left this church over a job offer that offered them $1.25 more. And on the altar of a dollar and twenty-five cent more per hour raise, they sacrifice their children, their family. They sacrifice it all because there's an opportunity and God's opening doors. Do you not think that Satan can open doors just as easily as God can? What I'm saying is, don't just say, well, hey, I finally got the promotion I want. Hey, I finally arrived to the place I want. I finally made it. Progress cannot be the determining factor on whether or not you're following God. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. We see the past is often an enemy and progress can be an enemy. Here's another enemy, and I think this will resonate with many of us, the pace at which things are happening. It's interesting that upon hearing the word that Lazarus is sick, Jesus stays two days. John understood how much he loved this man and how much he loved this family. He, in verse 5, he tells us on that. He gives us a little insight to that. So, if I was a disciple and I heard of this sickness, it would seem to me that we either need to go now or the sickness isn't serious. Based upon what Jesus says, the sickness is not unto death, I guess probably many of them thought, well, it's not important, we'll just take our time, we'll stay here two days. But then Jesus comes out with a pretty poignant statement and says, Lazarus is dead. Why did Jesus wait? Uh, Though we do not have any indication what the sickness may have been, the word in the Greek there, sickness, it really doesn't give any clarity either. It means weakness, often derived from sickness. Meaning, when this messenger arrived and says, Lazarus is sick, it could have been the cold, it could have been uh, something much more serious. They had no way of knowing, but listen, Jesus knew what it was. He knew what it was. In fact, we see um, uh, Jesus' omniscience play out in this passage because no other messenger arrived on the scene to tell him Lazarus was dead and Jesus knew it already. He knew it. And can I just say, here's a comforting little side note. Aren't you thankful that that Jesus doesn't have to wait on the doctor's diagnosis to know what you're going through? When you're all there in the waiting room antsy about the test results, aren't you thankful there's a God in heaven that already knows how it's all going to play out? What a comforting thought that is. Sometimes that two-day period can be tough on us. Not knowing if we should go, not seeing God's direction not understanding what God's plan is or how He would have us follow Him through it, the unanswered questions of life are the most difficult for us to handle. The pace at which God moves is often not agreeable to us. You know what Lamentation says though? The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him. To the soul that seeketh Him, it is good that a man should both hope and 
quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. You say, none of us like that medicine, but that medicine is what most of us need. You say, Brother Andrew, I'm going through a lot and I've had some interruptions here lately. I don't fully understand what to do. Here's what you don't do. Rush through doors that you're kicking open. Try to answer questions that you do not have the answers to. Wait on the Lord. You want to know how these disciples found God's will for them? You want to know how these disciples followed God? The very same way you and I do. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Christ. They were on His time schedule. Whenever Jesus moved, they moved. Wherever Jesus went, they went. You see, many people think of the will of the Lord like a road map, trying to get from point A to point B. The will of God is not a road map in your life. It is relationship to be lived out on a daily basis. And if you will stay close to Christ, you will never be out of God's will. There's an interruption of life, and Jesus is trying to teach them some lessons on this. But the second lesson is this, the intentionality of the Lord. You see, God does everything on purpose. The intentionality of the Lord. Uh, There's a song by Ron Hamilton, also known as Patch the Pirate. And the song says this, God never moves without purpose or plan. That is true. God has a purpose and a plan for everything. And in this moment, the Lord is intentionally making decisions. And what becomes abundantly clear as you read the passage is, though there's a lot of chaos and everybody else seems to be out of control, Jesus never is. And He tries to teach the disciples two very important lessons here. Number one, His affection. His affection for this family. Uh, I see this because the reason Jesus left Jerusalem in the first place was because the ministry had gotten to the point where every day the Pharisees and the, and the, uh, the, the uh, Sanhedrin council were trying to take His life. They had heard His message. They had, they had questioned Him enough times. He was a blasphemer. He was a zealot. He was trying to cause problems for them. And so now the ministry had just gotten too much for them to handle. And so Jesus has to flee out of their presence. That's the reason we find Him in this place uh, when we open the chapter. He's left Jerusalem intentionally. And now Mary and Martha send a messenger to Him and says, Hey Lord, can you come back? See, Bethany is only about uh, 15 furlongs. It's about two miles from Jerusalem. It's, it's Joshua and Burleson. They're right beside each other. And so for Mary and Martha to request that the Lord would come back to Bethany is essentially saying, Lord, we know the reason you left, but we're asking that you come back. And in this we see the great affection of our Savior. Because, do you notice with me, I believe it is in verse number 3, the the words come across, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. There's no prayer request there. Do you notice that? They don't ask Jesus to do anything. They don't ask Him, hey, Jesus, can you come heal him? The, The statement is this, Lord, he whom thou lovest is sick. John 11.36, as I mentioned earlier, verse 35 is, Jesus wept. The very next statement, the mourners notice and says, Behold how He loved Him. Jesus loved this family. There is no doubt about it. 
He loved them dearly. What's interesting is, in the way that Mary and Martha send the messenger, and the way that the mourners perceive his love for Lazarus, in both cases the word is used, phileo. It means brotherly love. It would be similar to what you would say about your best friend. Like, I love you as a best friend. And Jesus was that and more. Because when Jesus arrives on the scene, here's what John says. And by the way, this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This statement is accurate. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's a different word. Mary and Martha say, Jesus, your best friend is sick. The mourners say, wow, this was really this guy's best friend, wasn't it? Jesus' word, penned by John himself, is this. He who thou agape, a sacrificial love, one of volition, of choice, not because you have something to offer, but because he loves you. The Bible says... Now, Jesus loved them in that way. And don't you see that? Jesus left Jerusalem, and I don't have time, we can go into it. At the end of chapter 10, the very reason He leaves is because He has to flee for His life. For Jesus to go back to the place that He just left for fear of His own life is not He saying, I will give my life so that I might give Lazarus his back. Is not, do not we see a shadow of the substitutionary payment for Lazarus' life? Because most Bible students and Bible commentators on the timeline put this chapter only about a week and a day ahead of the day when Christ will hang on Calvary. This is the last time Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. When Jesus makes the decision to leave where He was in safety, in the house of confidence, to go to Jerusalem where He knows He will hang as the Passover lamb for everyone, the thing that drew Him to this place was to give His friend life. For now I want you to know the very reason He left heaven's throne was to do the very same thing for you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible says when we were yet without strength, meaning we were the paralytic man, we were the blind man, we were the leper, we were without strength, and in due time Christ died for the ungodly. When Jesus came from heaven's throne to Bethlehem's manger, He was doing it because He chose that your life was more valuable than His own. That's how much He loves you. Oh man, in this we see the love of God was manifested for us that He died on Calvary's cross so that you did not have to. We see that the statement, I am the resurrection and the life is no more true in this moment than at any other. This is Jesus being life for Lazarus and the way that Jesus gave Lazarus His was by sacrificing His own. We see a shadow of the substitutionary death of Christ, but we also see a shadow of the voluntary submission of Christ. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and just the chapter before where we are? He says, no man takes my life. I give it. 
He says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I want you to understand, friend, and maybe you don't know this, but Jesus was not arrested and detained and forcefully brought to Pilate's courtroom. In fact, Peter drew a sword and cut off a guy's ear trying to defend the Lord. And the Lord said, Peter, what are you doing? This is the plan. This is what I'm supposed to do. And as Jesus, the Lamb of God, shut his mouth and was silent at the mock trial that they held there, he did not defend himself. He did not speak up for himself. He, the great advocate, did not attorney for himself. And he stood there as a sheep, dumb before his shearers, and he voluntarily laid his life down. And he did this for Lazarus. He left a place of safety to go to a place of torture. All for Lazarus. And all for you. And for me. He willingly laid his life down for us. And in this we see that he is the resurrection and the life. And I'm telling you today, friend, the great news of the gospel is that it didn't end in Jesus resigning his life but that it resounded in His resurrection. Jesus didn't just lay Himself down, He rose Himself up. And we see in the glorious death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the plan for eternal life. And there is none other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. And there's a lot of people trying to be good and do right. And it will end themselves in a place called hell, eternally separated from God. If Jesus did all this, that He would leave heaven's throne to die on Calvary's cross, He is the only way of salvation for you and for me. And man, the fact that He rose again on the third day proves to you and I, He's already done it for Himself. He can do it for us. I am the resurrection and the life. He teaches His disciples a few lessons. He teaches them, number one, there are interruptions of life. Number two, there is an intentionality of the Lord. The Lord does not do anything on accident. It is all on purpose. And then there is an illustration of Lazarus that He wants to teach these men. It's very clear as you read the passage that the men, uh, though well-intentioned, are completely oblivious. Jesus says, Lazarus sleepeth. You know what they say? Well, that's good. And I can just imagine the eye roll of our Savior as He says, Guys, He's not just sleeping, He's dead. And they said, Well, how is that? Just a... A little while ago, you told us that this sickness was not unto death. Now you're telling us he's dead. Are you wrong or what, what's going on? Friend, the reason Jesus said this sickness is not unto death, Jesus was saying death is not where this story ends. It's not that death would not be included. It's that this would not be the end of the story. You ever heard Paul Harvey say, and now you know the rest of the story? Jesus is letting them in on the preview before it ever happened. Guys, it doesn't end in the grave. And we see that there are illustrations pictured here for these disciples, these men who had followed Christ. I want you to see in the first place, he wanted to teach them about his power in verse 15. In verse 14, he says, Lazarus is dead. In verse 15, he says, and I am glad for your sakes. Why is that? Why would he be glad? I'm glad that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe. Now here's what I don't fully understand. 
at least some of these men had already seen Jesus' power over death. Jesus in His ministry has already raised two others from the dead. The first being Jairus' daughter, uh, who when Jesus came, uh, He went into the house. And the Bible says, as He went to the house, a servant came out to meet them and met Him there and says, He's already dead. Your daughter's already dead. It's already done. Jesus says, oh, she, she's not dead. She's sleeping. And by the way, everybody laughs at him. I don't know if, well, in that particular story, he just invites James, uh, John, and Peter to go in there, and they are the ones that see the resurrection. There's another story of a widow's son who's being brought out of the city gate. Jesus sees them, has mercy on them, takes compassion on them. And in that moment, He raises up the widow's son. The Bible says many of His disciples were there. It doesn't say all of them were there, so I don't know who it was. But for some reason, it did not resonate with these men that Jesus truly was the resurrection and the life. Though they had seen Him raise people from the dead, when they got to the grave... All of them had just resigned. Well, death is the end. That's all there is for this family. I guess we just should just join in with the mourners. You know what Jesus says? I'm glad I wasn't there for your sakes. To the intent that you may believe. Believe what? That I can do what I say I can do. That I have power over death. So He takes these men and He shows all of them, as far as I can tell, in this moment when He says, Lazarus, come forth. He shows all of them His glorious power. Now friend, I realize in a congregation this size, there are problems abounding. I realize that all of us have different things. There's different age groups. I look over here at Tristan and Miss Sable. I see kind of the younger groups of our church. And I think of what y'all are going through, trying to figure yourselves out as a young adult's career paths and college decisions and marital partners. You've got a lot on your plate. I look at some of the older folks in our, uh, in our congregation that are trying to deal with grandkids and, and kids and, and kids that still cost them a lot more money than we should cost them. And I look all across this room and I recognize with a diverse group that we have, there's all sorts of problems. Furthermore, I recognize that of this congregation, a size like this, there are people that are dealing with intense problems. Things that are abnormal and out of the ordinary. Things that are bigger than the everyday stuff. And it's on your heart. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe it's an occupational situation you don't have the answers to. In this, in this uh, room this morning, problems abound. But whatever your problem is, the fact that Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave proves to us, you do not have a problem too big for Him to handle. You just don't. If He can bring life to a decaying body, He can bring hope to your situation. He wanted to show them His power, and He wanted to build their faith. What does He say? I'm glad that I was not there for your sakes, to the intent that you may believe. You know what Christ wants you to do this morning? Believe in Him. Trust Him. 100% completely. I was talking to... Uh, two different people in our church just this weekend about having to make changes and, and decisions and there was some uncertainty. We've been praying with them about certain things and, and I was telling them, I was like, you know, it's so hard for us to trust the Lord on that side of the problem. 
to the Lord, He's on both sides of the problem before you ever even find out it's an issue. But before we, before, it's the BC, before the conflict, we just say, oh, what are we going to do? I just don't have the answer. I just don't know. I just don't know. And you know what? Here's what we need to do. Slow down and trust the Lord. That doesn't mean you don't pursue opportunities. That doesn't mean you don't stay active about your business. In fact, one thing we'll study uh, probably week three is that when Jesus gets to the tomb, He says, all right, take the stone away. Well, couldn't the same guy that called Lazarus out of the grave roll the stone away? Why did He have other people do it? Because God does have you do some stuff. What man can do, God doesn't need to. And what God can do, man shouldn't try. So be busy, be active, be trying to do what you can do, but wait patiently on the Lord and trust Him entirely. That's the purpose of it. That you would believe to the intent that you may believe. This morning, I uh, don't know who's all in our audience. We have members long time. We have guests that have only been here a handful of Sundays. I was able to meet some of you before. Maybe I've never met you and this is your first time in our congregation. Jesus wants you to trust Him on an everyday basis. A a daily walk of discipleship, of trust in Him, a, a relationship. And by the way, this is not religion, what we practice here at Joshua Baptist Church. This is a relationship with God Almighty. We know Him and He knows us. He knows the very heads on our hair and every day we get to know Him a little bit more. This is a real relationship with our Savior. And God wants us to trust Him every day. But you know what you have to do before you can ever trust Him on a daily basis? You must trust Him on a saving basis. A saving basis. You must know Him, and He must know you. That's the truth of the gospel, is that Jesus came and did everything for you that He was willing to do for Lazarus. He voluntarily laid down His life. He substituted His life for yours. For in the moment that He hung on the cross of Calvary, your sins were placed on Him and His righteousness was placed on you. You do not get that because you are good, because you're deserving, because you've worked at a charity or a, a good cause. You only get that gift based upon good, God's good mercies and grace in your life. And he extends it freely of Himself, not of works of righteousness, lest any man should boast. You can be saved by grace. But it all begins in faith. Before you can trust Him daily, you must trust Him for your salvation. And today, if there is an inkling of doubt in your heart whether or not you'd spend eternity with God in heaven, you do not have to wrestle with that any longer. For five years of my life, I raised my hand when the preacher asked me if I was saved. And for many of those occasions, I had deceived myself and taught myself into it. I thought I was saved because of something I had said, a movement I had made, but in that decision, there was an emptiness, there was no faith placed in the moment, 
There was no faith placed in Christ instead of myself. I continued living the way I was living. And for those five years, every time the preacher said, if you were to, if you were to die today, are you 100% you'd go to heaven? I wrestled my hand up. And you know what, what was so hard about that? Is that 1%, 2%, 3% of doubt seemed so much heavier on my elbow than the 98% of certainty. It was hard to get it up, but I talked myself into it until one night at a youth camp, God said, you know that if you were to die today, you'd split hell wide open. For five years, I dealt with that torture and misery and pain. And friend, if you're going through that right now, I know where you are, and you don't have to be there. You don't have to doubt it because Christ has done everything for you. He has paid the debt you owed. He has applied the blood to the mercy seat in heaven's uh, throne room. Now all you have to do is come to Him and say, Lord, I believe that You died for me and that You rose on the third day. I accept You as my Lord and Savior. And on the authority of Your Word, not my hope, not my wish, but on Your Word, You promise You will save me. So that the next time the preacher asks that question, oh, there's no doubt about it, there's 100% a spring under that elbow and you shoot that thing up and you say glory to God my soul has been redeemed not because I'm worthy and not because I'm good but because I have trusted in a Savior who gave His life for mine I know I'm saved praise God I'm saved and the Bible says let the redeemed of the Lord say so so every time I ask that question at the end of service you raise that hand but friend today If you have any uncertainty, any doubt, don't let it hold that elbow down. You come forward and you trust Christ as your Savior. There's no shame. There's no no, uh, uh, embarrassment. There's just a bunch of people saved by the grace of God who are rooting for you that you'll be in heaven with us, enjoying the glories that God has prepared for us. Do you know today the resurrection and the life?